0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And
0: And welcome welcome to to... School of Movies. (laughs) The Others.
1: Sometimes the world
2: of the dead gets mixed up with the world of the living. As you can see, the housework has been rather neglected since the servants disappeared almost a week ago. Do you mean they just vanished? Into thin air. How do you do, children? I'm your new nanny. Are you going to leave us, too? Why should I leave you? The others said they wouldn't, but they did. And then it happened. Why do you open the curtains? It was Victor. You told your brother that there was someone else in the room. There was. That'll do, Anne.
1: I've seen them, too. You have? Sooner or later, she'll see them then everything would be different.
0: this episode was commissioned by listener colin dysart who is a massive nicole kidman fan and ended up picking one of our very favorite of her performances and forewarning this film has some pretty heavy and dark themes and a shadowy tone to match if you're currently reeling from the death of someone close to you maybe hold off for a bit until you're ready we would also thoroughly suggest seeing the film before listening there's going to be a spoilers borderline section, maybe halfway through, like, you know, once we're past this point, like a point of no return. And once we're beyond that, all will be revealed, because that will give us a lot more freedom to deconstruct what's actually happening. Uh, this 2001 film appeared during a mini-Renaissance of Spanish, Mexican, and Latinx directors hitting their stride. you got Alejandro González Inyateru with Amoros Peros, Pedro Almodovar with All About My Mother, Fernando Merelez and Katie Lund with City of God, Fabian Bielinski with Nine Queens, Alfonso Cuaron with Itu Mamatambian. These incredibly talented creators were given much-needed prominence at the turn of the century and formed one of the high points of a difficult time for cinema. I remember there was a lot of Oscar buzz about a lot of the films mentioned above. It was like, we're finally noticing this part of the world exists. (laughs) Or indeed, these parts of the world exist. Fantasy in the early 2000s was about to become something that many studios would attempt due to Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings superheroes were also going to get kind of a workout before Marvel stepped up to the plate, and blockbusters were about to be seriously thrown sideways by the events of 9-11. Basically, we entered a period where they were, we don't know what to do. Do we do something depressing? Do we do something that kind of... Distracts you from the depression or do we kind of obsess about falling buildings let's let's do the third one obsess about exploding falling buildings for decades that
1: does make me think that once people decide the pause button is off making films about the pandemic they're gonna obsess
0: about it i don't think people will like watching them I don't think... They're going
1: to try it anyway.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure there'll be a patch when a whole bunch come out and, we were, and like the, the the world at large goes, yeah, no, we uh, this wasn't like just a thing that happened and shocked us. This was a thing that we had to sit through. They didn't make movies about rationing in the 1960s. Like remember that? Remember rationing? But one of the elements I loved most about the early 2000s was a prominence for Spanish ghost stories, and by that I mean the culture that stems from Spain and Mexico and South America and western europe these ghost stories contrast greatly with the simultaneously prolific wave of japanese horror which emerged at the time i love spanish ghost stories because by and large they are about pain and regret but crucially learning and moving forward beyond your trauma though not always Alejandro Fernando Amenabar was the director of Obre los Ojos, which means literally open your eyes, and that was remade into Vanilla Sky by Cameron Crowe. But here with the others, he delivers a ghost story that much like Mexico's Guillermo del Toro with The Devil's Backbone, Spain's Juan Antonio Bayona with El Orfanato*, Venezuela's Alejandro Hidalgo with The House at the End of Time, or Argentina's Andy Muschietti, of IT fame, with Mama. Or Mexico's Issa Lopez with Tigers Are Not Afraid. And then there's the chain of ghostly influence. Guillermo del Toro directed The Devil's Backbone, produced The Orphanage. Juan Antonio Bayona directed The Orphanage and produced Marabone. Sergio G. Sanchez wrote The Orphanage and directed Marabone. And nobody saw Marabone. It was wonderful and sad. But all of this burgeoning, cinematic, supernatural, dark therapy, all coming out within a short space of time, gives us an evolution of the cinematic ghost story. Just gives it that extra flair. Amenabar was there at ground zero, and he brings a delicate touch to this arresting gothic tale of suspense, intrigue, obsession, and tragedy. And I was saying to Colin uh, today on the chat when I told him we were doing this now. Uh, yeah, it holds up. In fact, um, if, if even if you know entirely what the film's about, it functions as a fantastic drama and doesn't hang upon its twist.
1: The build up to it is as tight and well paced as what come what happens after it.
0: Yes. It never deflates.
1: No. Now, children,
2: are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. This story started many thousands of years ago, but it was all over in just seven days. All that long, long time ago, none of the things we can see now. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the animals and plants. Not a single one existed. Only God existed. And so only he could have created them. And he did.
0: So our intro, we get candlelit drawings. So you've got this flickering golden light, which really stuck with me in terms of stylistic choices. And um, you've got these creepy drawings of uh, the the kids, but they look like they're kids in a children's book from the period. This is set in 1945. And you've got what appear to be kind of uh, storyboards, but very... Um, very detailed storyboards illustrating what's going to be happening in this film but also to establish a tone Mm. to it
1: it foreshadows the fact that a lot of the story here is going to be told through photos and paintings and drawings not necessarily the pictures themselves but the contexts in which they are made or found
0: And the the music here, this hypnotic flute, and I think that's a harp that's playing as well at the same time. It's very watery. Very, there's a very feminine quality to it. And it's very gentle. It's beguiling, but it doesn't have that ominousness that the movie eventually starts to take mm-hmm. on as, as you get deeper and darker into the story. Yeah. Uh, though it does start with... Uh, Grace, the character Nicole Kidman plays, as a mother reading, uh, well, beginning what appears to be a Bible story to, uh, for her children, which automatically, since you're in the dark looking at this, illustrates that they're effectively being preserved in a fantasy world. Does that makes sense?
1: It does. There's There's something about the way that, uh, and again, in terms of the the methods by which information is passed between characters in this, there are… people say a lot of things that aren't true, but the level to which they are not true and the level to which that person is convincing themselves that they are true is one of the mysteries to be unpicked and unravelled.
0: Yeah. And that music that I mentioned was composed by the director himself. It's uh, it's rare that you'll get a director who does that. I, I think I think John Carpenter sprang to mind.
1: Okay.
0: Not many others. I got a feeling maybe David Lynch tried his hand <laughs> at some point. Maybe just banged a piano with a hammer. I found out uh, Dario Argento, Clint Eastwood. I was right on David Lynch, Alejandro Hodorowsky, and Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, this takes place, like I said, in on the island of Jersey, uh, which is in the Channel Islands, just off the coast of Britain.
1: Uh, yeah, Jersey is in between Britain and France. I think it's actually closer to France than it is to the, to the British Isles.
0: Let's go to the phones. Sure. You're absolutely right looking at the location. Uh, if you go down to the bottom left, if you look at the British Isles like an old man with a teddy bear... Uh, a, a, a reluctant koala, which is Ireland and era. If you look down the bottom of his left foot, and then you slowly you know, go down the map towards France, you'll see the island of Guernsey and Jersey, which are located just a few miles offshore of the west of France. So this is kind of a, a difficult and contested territory, especially in 1945, and it turns out later on the, and if you know your history you already know this one that uh, the island of Jersey was occupied by the Germans during the Second World War They, the island had to surrender because they had no choice and Grace wakes up screaming so we, we get this sort of misty manor house and these, these sweeping gardens and Grace shocks us immediately and that kind of puts you on edge for the rest of the movie because there are going to be loud bangs and clanks mm-hmm. the soundscape is not your friend mm-hmm. it's fascinating to listen to, but it will just hit you. I'm going to tell you now, if you're of a a more nervous disposition, I will not be making loud, sudden bangs to scare you in this show. I would far prefer that you trust me. If you're listening to one of my audiobooks, that's different. Under those circumstances, we may bang. And the trailer made it sound like a lot more of a different kind of movie.
1: And that is... I I won't say artificially inflated, it's crafted this way, but because once we start to understand from Grace what is going on in this house, or at least what she thinks is going on in this house, there is a parameter that is set down for light, for sound and for electricity, which immediately sets up the fact that the elements of life have been removed from this house mm. it's it's a very dark quiet unmoving place which then immediately makes us alert to any hint of light sound or movement
0: yeah yeah there is a stillness to the whole place mm. and a, a quietude
1: yeah there's nothing here that should be moving on its own hmm which is why the puppets are so unnerving
0: yeah and uh, folks, if you thought you had lockdown problems, this, this is a lockdown movie and a half. The, um, th- there is a sense of being trapped inside a house, inside a gate, on an island, in a sea, during a war, in a time of conflict. And this sword of Damocles that uh, represents uh, death just hanging over the whole place the whole time. Uh, Because her husband, Charles, uh, played by Christopher Eccleston uh, later in the film, is at war. And she's clearly delineated as very lonely, sleeping in this large bed alone. And there's a coldness to the bedroom itself. And when you get the outside shots of this place, this is where some of the few special effects for the movie were made. They used very little digital. They used very little practical. So much of it is just your own uh, mind kind of conjuring things that are going to be there. It doesn't have that yanking, scary faces and screaming fits at you out of nowhere. The Woman in Black most definitely leans on that at times. This is an odd sister to The Woman in Black, actually thinking about it. There are, there are definitely themes threaded through both, but there's that kind of mournful sense of loss from the get-go with both, specifically involving children. But the effects that I uh, mentioned, they obviously couldn't control mist and they didn't want to throw huge amounts of um, water down on this house on such a low budget. So, And even if they did, to be able to get the really, really wide shots, you have to somehow remove an enormous amount of machinery. Effectively, the, the bits of actual digital that we got were when the people in the gardens were actually acting against green screens or blue screens and then they removed those and added the shots of the house and then added uh, siege, effectively digital mist in between. So effectively you're seeing the real house, you're seeing the real people in the foreground and in between there you have a curtain of mist which serves as a, I suppose, prison bars. It's very subtly done and you just, you don't think about it. You just assume they filmed on a misty day all the time. So then we get uh, visitors to the uh, house. We've got um, uh, Mrs. Mills, played by Fenella Flanagan, uh, Mr. Tuttle, played by Eric Sykes, and a young lady named Lydia, who never speaks, played by Elaine Cassidy. And to start, like, straight away, you're like, well, they seem pleasant, but they're hiding something. And then that immediately just, you've already been asking questions in your head, yet you start asking more and they present themselves to the lady of the house and say that they uh, uh, answered an ad in the paper to come and, you know, because this house is so big and needs a lot of upkeep. So we heard you need servants. And she later on uh, says, you know what, I never actually got that message to the paper. Why the hell are you here? And they admit that they used to serve in this house a long while ago and they just came back because it felt like home to, uh, to just sort of help out. And that again starts just you know, sparking your, what are you folks not telling them? And Grace, as it turns out, has a lot of reasons to be paranoid. Her children, Anne and Nicholas, uh, both suffer from a uh, rare disease called...
1: Zeroderma pigmentosum
0: xeroderma pigmentosum which we will abbreviate to xp from now on and there was a uh, an extra on the uh, blu-ray about uh, kids and it all seemed to be kids who suffered from this extremely rare disease in the early 2000s mm.
1: it's because people it's a genetic disorder which means that you can be a carrier and not suffer from it mm. but if you get a both a gene from both parents um it will then manifest, and mm. the reason why most of the sufferers seem to be children is because they don't live very long.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was it was bone chilling and heartwarming and just so sad to watch these families talk about the the, the difficulties they uh, they face because effectively, and this is the conceit of the film, and it's a it's a good one because it it makes you concerned as well as an audience member. Uh, the kids can't go out into the sun, or they will start to immediately blister and burn. And they have an incredible sensitivity to natural light, which means that everything must remain dark and uh, shadowy in their lives. This means they are effectively locked in the house. The curtains must always be drawn. And the way Grace Nicole Kidman describes it, you have to move through the house and treat the place like a submarine opening doors to make sure that you can obscure the light before opening other doors to let the kids through. So it's light must always be managed and apportioned throughout the house. And effectively, her task every day is to keep natural light out of the house. And it is a big house covered in windows. One might ask why they bought the place, but of course they wouldn't have known until they had the children.
1: True, although we don't know when it happened because it seems as though they haven't lived here for very long. She says at one point that her husband bought the house. Yeah. She's obviously lived on Jersey since she was little. Right. But... She also has rooms in this house that she's obviously never been into. There's stuff that was left behind by previous occupants that she's not looked at.
0: Which makes her feel more temporary. And less at home.
1: And the constant controlling of the light is a thematic reflection of her constant controlling of the truth. She won't let truth be revealed in the house the same way she won't let light into the house. She
0: won't let it be dragged out into the light.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And she is the one who's in control of it. She's got the keys. She closes the curtains. She's the only person who's allowed into rooms where light is allowed so that she can sew.
0: To their extreme credit, they're never really on the nose about that particular parallel.
1: No. No, not at all. It's This is one of the things that I love about this film. Everything that is a metaphor is presented in terms that... It's really difficult to explain. There's there's kind of a there's a biting point of something being clear enough to click once you see enough examples of it but not so obvious that you're like, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, everything thrown out up front. Right. It's it's a
0: deftly managed
1: very very difficult skill to master. Um, And I, one of the reasons why this kind of horror story is my favourite or this kind of ghost story is my favourite is that the people who are really good at these are really good at that particular kind of um, uh, incident as theme.
0: But uh, the uh, kids who suffer from XP, um, the parents talking about it were only just beginning to be able to start using the internet. And because it's so rare, these kids live hundreds of miles sometimes from anyone who might also suffer from it mm. or live with it. I prefer living with rather than suffering it's, with.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that has to be managed very, very carefully. Post-script to this, um, it transpired in the early 2010s. There was a massive leap in incidence in the Navajo population. Shit. In the regular population, it's approximately one in a million. In the Navajo population in this particular area, it's uh, something like one in 30,000. And there's been... Speculation as to what has caused it. Some people think it's to do with the reduction of the gene pool as a result of ethnic cleansing in the mid-1800s. Some people think it's to do with uranium poisoning, but whatever the reason, in this particular population, the incidence is very high.
0: Well, it's incredibly challenging, and not least from the fact that the child themselves has to cope from a ridiculously early age with the idea that they will never see daylight. They live permanently in the dark, and... Uh, they can be under uh, soft electric lighting, and in this case, uh, it's uh, lamps. Mm. But um, it's the
1: ultraviolet that hurts them. Yeah. So anything that's soft and has minimal ultraviolet in it, they're okay with.
0: Yeah. Uh, they, uh, there was a, an organization of something called uh, Camp Sundown where a whole bunch of the kids from all over the world uh, were brought together just so that they could hang out with kids like themselves, which I would imagine was kind of a landmark moment for most of them in their lives. Just the, the feeling that they weren't alone in this because the isolation and feeling like you you just can't interact with you literally can't interact with other kids. Unless they come to you, yeah.
1: Unless they can also come out at night.
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing. They've got to be able to come to you at a really strange hour. I feel like if if this was me, and I don't even know how I'd be able to get there, but if I suffered from that, I would go and live one of the in one of those places where it's just night for most of the year,
1: and have somewhere else to go and live when you're when it's the part of the year that's always daylight.
0: Maybe so. <laughs> it's uh, it's an imperfect system but maybe i just stay in for the rest of that time but uh, yeah but it also, this presents a very real danger to the kids and Grace is very worried about them at all times and she is riven with anxiety and wound as tight as a drum the whole way through. Nicole Kidman gives an incredibly brittle performance and this was around about the time she was um, separating from Tom Cruise, he's even a producer on the uh, film itself mm-hmm. so it feels like it's difficult to interpret a performance, but it feels like she's brought everything, all of the frustration from that scenario all to this one performance. Because mm. she did Moulin Rouge in me almost immediately after this and is an absolute delight. Mm.
1: Well, she actually, uh, she did an interview a few years ago and said that although the divorce had come as something of a shock to her, she wasn't anticipating it by the sounds of things she did feel that a lot of highly applauded work that she did afterwards came out of that so she's kind of viewing it with a bit more um grace (laughs) (laughs) than you might expect
0: no actually hang on shut my mouth this was november in 2001 and moulin rouge was september
1: and she separated from Cruise in February two thousand and one. So right. I'm guessing then there might the filming some of those overlap. two were, yeah. were overlapping. But the uh, oh,
0: uh, and uh, Colin, uh, the commissioner of the show, pointed out that she is also called Grace in Grace of Monaco, in Dogville, and The Undoing. That's a lot of Grace.
1: Hmm. Tom Cruise being involved in this as an executive producer also cross refers with Vanilla Sky because what got his interest in getting uh, Amenabar to come and direct this, ah. was watching Abre Ojos.
0: Right, that makes sense.
1: But Justice and Pastor, far from
2: being afraid, rejoiced and showed themselves willing to die for Christ. When he saw this, the Roman governor was filled with rage and ordered their heads to be cut off. <laughs> <laughs> what do you find so amusing? Well. Well, what? Those children were really stupid. Why? Because they said they only believed in Jesus and then they got killed for it. And what would you have done to deny Christ? Well, yes. Inside I would have believed in him, but I wouldn't have told the Romans that. Is that what you think too, Nicholas? I see. So you both would have lied to the point of denying Christ. Oh, you'd have saved your heads being chopped off by the Romans, that's true. But what would have happened afterwards? When? In the next life. The one that's waiting for us after we die, where would you have gone? Oh. (gasps) Where, Nicholas? To the children's limbo. What is the children's limbo, Anne? One of the four hells. Which are? (gasps) <gasps> me, 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 me! No, no, no. Let him answer. Which are? There's the hell where the damned go. Then there's purgatory. Yes. And the bosom of Abraham yes. where the just go and limbo where children go. At the centre of the earth. Where it's very, very hot. That's where children go who tell lies, but they don't just go there for a few days. Oh, no. No, they're damned. Forever think about it try to imagine the end of eternity close your eyes close your eyes and try to imagine it pain
0: forever so the two kids are anne and nicholas and they are played by Alakina Mann and James Bentley, respectively. And um, Bentley is of uh, that tender age where he's just a little bit older maybe than that kid in The Shining, so he just about can kind of get his head around what's going on. But um, Alakina Mann really knows how to play this uh, character. She is, I'd say she's the principal antagonist of the film. She is the person who... Effectively challenges her mother over and over again and antagonises the situation.
1: Yes, personally, I wouldn't call her an antagonist exactly. You Challenger, could call her the
0: protagonist. Uh,
1: the fact that she challenges her mother is is key to my interpretation of her, but I can't say wait till we're over to the borderline. The
0: spoiler section. Okay, um, but yeah, she. She could have come off as a really annoying, horrible kid, like a disgusting shit boy, like just someone that you do not want to see on screen. And every time she turns up, you're like, shut up, kid. But when she is petulant, because of the way the film is set up, even before you know what's going on, you're like, yeah, you're being treated unfairly. Absolutely fight for this. She is obnoxious, definitely. At times, she could be more Tactful, And you pointed out she has no tact whatsoever when zero. it comes to asking things absolutely that might zero. be sensitive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But at her age, you wouldn't necessarily expect that, and especially because she is obviously a very smart kid. And when she does try to deconstruct situations, she does it in a rational way. Mm. Everything she says, she's, I mean, it's it's not quite at the stage where she's actually got evidence because her resources are limited. Mm. But every point she tries to counteract, to her mother on is well thought out
0: and it's frustrating for her when everything every point she makes gets shot down with basically what boils down to because I said so yes indeed which when you're at a certain age you're like no that is not good enough that is not good enough because I said so
1: absolutely and even before certain information starts to come to light there are moments of really this is not parenting at its best Grace what are you doing
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, This is Grace Under Fire Uh, So Anne now has started talking about the others uh, Who want them to leave this house Uh, They declare that this place is theirs So we start to get real ghost vibes at this stage Where she uh, talks about uh, a mother and a father And a boy named Victor and an old lady who she in the customary fashion especially for the era of filmmaking she was like i'll just draw you a picture creepiest fucking picture ever
1: basically looks like medusa
0: yeah well like uh, she's she's an old lady who is blind Mm. and so she's got no pupils in her eyes which means when a child draws her with the sort of scary lines and describes her as scary it's Okay, so so what's going on with this old lady? And then um, apparently this unseen boy, Victor, uh, tells Anne that she's a witch. So it's... You're, you're very much on edge. And then I think just this wonderful single line that she says, just to kind of... Like, she's not even trying to embroider it. It's the way she delivers it. Just her breath smells in a kind of, I've been way too close to this apparition and it's just again you're not seeing anything you're just hearing it described and looking at a picture and you're filling in all the blanks yourself yeah
1: well this is the thing to for for a child to say that something has a smell it gives it a tangibility Mm. it it gets you out of what can sometimes be a bit of a safe zone with ghost stories, which is they're just illusions. They can't touch you. Yeah. They can't hurt
0: you. It's an extra detail most kids wouldn't think to add if yes. they were le- making something up.
1: Indeed, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um And we hear them in noises, like I said, the soundscape of this film. You'll get a lot of uh, scenes where Grace has just said, you know, I will hear no more talk of these ghosts, and then goes and sits quietly in a room while the house is absolutely quiet and her kids are in two separate rooms having to uh, uh, learn their Bible studies and then she'll hear like thumping footsteps above her and the the, uh, chandelier will will shake and then there's very loud bangs here and there and like, they'll be just like quiet, quiet, door slam. But it doesn't have that obnoxious, I'm going to say Blumhouse, even though Blumhouse sometimes do this really well and it's the Blumhouse copycats that are tedious with mm. it. But that, like something, something, boom, and then they not only make the sound within the soundscape, but then they add a musical sting mm. a, to aggressively yeah, jostle if, you. That's
1: what I was going to say. All of the unnerving sounds in this are diegetic. Grace can hear them. Yeah. It's not just some a musical cue or a um, a loud scrape or something for our benefit. It's all stuff that she can hear, which means that we are empathizing with her own being on edge and, and being nervous about hearing these noises. The other thing that they managed to avoid impressively is screams. There's a few incidences where you hear a child crying, but there's either none or almost none of just unearthly shrieks and cackles.
0: There's a couple of... Uh, the, the, an old lady uh, suddenly... Uh, um, well, that we mentioned before, does make a sort of a gasping screech sound. And... Grace definitely does a bit of screaming herself, but it's not like an aggressive ghost screaming at us, the audience. That's
1: what I mean. It's not. Um, it's not the kind of scream that. The, well, there's a reason that I use the term unearthly. All of the noises that we hear earthy, come from yeah. people. They are noises that people make when they encounter certain situations.
0: And uh, this is because we were many years, oh, maybe nearly 10 years off the rash of um jump scare screamy uh, PG-13 ghost stories when 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 around about the time Blumhouse made Insidious i think Insidious 2 is actually even more guilty of the whole like i i love that James Wan has come so far i i'm i was never a fan of Insidious it pokes a lot of my buttons in an aggressive way um but the second one's the one where it's just like anything happens and they slam on all the keys of a piano at the same time. It's like, yeah, I get it. She just opened the fridge, for God's sake. <laughs> and there's like what are you
1: keeping in your fridge she
0: walks to the front of a camera and then someone walks behind her across the room and there's like bang on there and then she you know you look at a character and then Darth Maul stands behind going a miracle I said a miracle you're a true wizard
2: how can I ever repay ya and he said to me 500 euros 500 euros, you won't see penny one from me, you slag!
0: And again, one of the reasons I don't like Insidious, or or find Insidious inadvertently hilarious, is because so many of the demons in it actually resemble creatures from The Mighty Boosh, which is hilarious and makes the film unintentionally funny. Yes. Uh, Where, when Mm -hmm. I should be scared, I'm laughing. Especially at the little sailor boy (laughs) going... Which I know freaks out, Andrew Jupiter. is the scariest thing in the world, man. A little kid dancing in a sailor suit. I'm the slap bass president, for God's sake.
2: Oh, yeah, it used to be Mark King, but we had a thumb duel, and I smashed him into the ground like a blonde tent peg. Get back to level 42 and go about your business.
0: There's none of that in this. Like, this is before that time, and there's an elegance to it, in, in that the things that are happening are happening off camera, and you can't see them, and then there's, it's just things like... Um, Grace walks into a room with a piano, which appeared to have been being played, and the flap is up. And then she goes towards it to try and play it, and the flap slams down. But it's not—it's not shot in that "aha, gotcha, major jump" way. It's designed to alarm you without making you giggle.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: I don't think that this film is supposed to be funny Mm. in the way that most of the jump scare films later on were definitely designed to sort of ruffle the audiences up so that they'd giggle.
1: It's because these noises and movements are understated which allows the unnerving nature of them to be sustained. The whole point of a a jump scare or a shock or a shriek or something flying across a room, it's dialed up because then you get the... Um, the build of tension immediately before the spike of tension when the thing happens and then the release of tension immediately afterwards Mm. because the spike was so over the top that your your brain kind of goes oh that's clearly not real and you straight back down again Mm. with this everything that happens every noise every thump every movement because there is a part of you that's going that's real that's that's somebody doing that It doesn't give you that release. It's this build and build and build and build, and you don't get the um, explosive uh, out-breath until the right moment comes.
0: Which maintains the tension, and it makes it, I want to say more Hitchcock-y, but I've seen the birds. (laughs) And he does go way over the top. It's all right. I don't want to throw Hitchcock under the bus on this one. Yeah, on it's, a, it's a
1: different kind of suspense, to yeah. my mind, okay. because he's not working with things that aren't there.
0: Yeah. It's probably closer to something like Robert Wise with The Haunting and Jack Clayton with The Innocents. Uh, but this all uh, plays into the themes of the uh, film itself, and I think we're now at the borderline point where we're going to have to, now that we've established they're in this house, the children are uh, uh, um, uh, very sensitive to sunlight, so all the curtains are always drawn, uh, the mother, Grace, is trying desperately to keep them from uh, being exposed to sunlight, and it, it feels like there are intruders in her home that she's being told are ghosts, by her daughter Anne, who seems to know a lot more about what's going on than she does.
1: Actually, no. Well, she does. Anne she says, no, constantly telling them it's not, not ghosts. Not
0: ghosts, because ghosts have chains and sheets and they go, ooh. Yeah. But there's definitely a presence in the house that she can't get rid of. And then there's these mysterious servants, this kindly old Irish woman who keeps having these... Lengthy kind of meaningful conversations with Grace to uh, to try to sort of pick at her and 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 find out just sort of how difficult it must be dwelling on your own like this all the time and. You've got Mr. Tuttle, who's just this kindly old, you know, uh, Eric Sykes, who is a star of British radio and uh, and uh, musical comedy. So uh, he doesn't he doesn't have that threatening feel to him. But then there's that girl who can't speak and hasn't spoken for a long, long time. And Fernando Flanagan plays the character of Mrs. Mills. Um In a very kind of like holding the tension between what is she not revealing and is she trying to help or is she menacing and there's this what the flip is going on here (laughs) so after the music we will tell you what the flip is going on here and everyone who's seen it obviously does know So what actually is going on here is tragic and sad. Massive spoilers, so either go see the others or proceed with the full knowledge of what's going on. Grace received word that her husband was killed at war. Driven mad with grief and the strain of their shared daily existence, she smothered both of her children with a pillow and then committed suicide with the shotgun that she keeps pulling out every time she gets afraid now all of them are effectively ghosts dwelling in the same house in 1945 unaware that they are dead and of what year it is i feel like when i first watched this i was wondering whether they died whether i'd, I'd missed some um important points and they kept talking about the war uh, as to whether the husband had in fact died during the First World War and Mm. they were still haunting it in 1945 kind of obsessed with the idea that there was a war on which would have been a good misdirect if they'd um, just been very careful with the words the idea that they've actually been here for nigh on 30 years still just kind of going through the motions of their sad existence when they were trapped there Mm. but it would appear that this tragedy occurred fairly recently
1: there's two things that I would say refute that as a theory, but it doesn't throw it out completely. Hmm. One is that there's a point where Grace says her family left the island and it's not entirely clear whether she says
0: 1914 Hmm. or 1940. Yeah. Also, there's the fact that everything's in 1940s garb but the average yeah. person might not be able to tell the difference between 1914 garb and 1944 garb. Well,
1: that's what I was thinking when I saw uh, Christopher Eccleston's uniform. Yeah, it that looks is very a little bit trenches. Hazy as to what that is. She also says uh, a, a Nazi never set foot in this house. And of the whole course the time Nazis the place were not was necessarily. And for her to acknowledge Nazis if it were talking First World War, then she would have had to let in a little bit more yeah. information, which at this point she is not willing to do.
0: She would say, uh, The Kaiser tried to get onto the island, but I chased him off.
1: Yeah. Also, um, I don't believe Jersey was occupied during the First World yeah. War. So that but, is the, the significant yeah.
0: point. Yeah. So it's, uh, as far as we can tell, it's only happened over a short span of time. Yeah. But, like I said, talking about the war and actually straddling the both wars would have been a neat little <laughs> ah yeah. moment. But. This film doesn't necessarily need our uh, moments. No. And it already has the mother of all ah uh, moments with this. It really does, this.
1: yes. And it's entirely possible that there are layers of ghosts wandering around this house that Grace doesn't know about.
0: Oh, now I'm even more scared. But they, significantly, they're unaware uh, that they are dead. And their new staff are a trio who served in this same house, as they said, in the Victorian era. And they died together of tuberculosis in 1891 and returned here to help to open the eyes of this troubled family who are stuck in a limbo of Grace's own making. Yes. Uh, There's a really effective scene where she starts digging through these rooms that you mentioned with uh, remnants from the uh, families that lived here before and i do mean families there's a lot of uh, like you know who who was here and and who um occupied this place and i actually incorporated this into the very beginning of uh, when i was writing new century the um uh the house of weirwood that uh, Abigail grows up in originally was going to have, that the ghost stuff that happens later in secret rooms in a different house was all supposed to happen in this house because of the previous occupants who were supposed to have lived in uh, in Weirwood. And the idea that they're now occupying a place where huge things happened and, and many other motifs from this film kind of made their way eventually into Let Them Go when I was doing a, a gothic survival scenario again in a house which had to feel like it had a real history to it and just the character of Rebecca holding pretty much the same shotgun and uh, wearing a similar red uh, long draped outfit as uh, Kidman in this definitely there's stylistic uh, elements to it and also just the idea of lighting everything with lamps and not being able to rely on daylight and, and everything being shrouded in darkness that just really stuck with me Now, the quote unquote ghosts or not ghosts that they are seeing and hearing are in fact a living family in 1945 or slightly afterwards trying to acclimatize themselves to this house where tragedy occurred. And the two families are interweaving and they both fear one another. What were you going to say?
1: Just that it's, I think it's a little bit later than 1945, but probably not much later. The
0: car they drive at the end and just their general garb is mm. very 40s. It's, I
1: think it's late 40s at the very latest. Yeah. It's This is clearly who the house passed to after mm. Grace and the children died.
0: Yes. Um, and the uh, old woman is a blind spirit medium, not part of that family, uh, but she's been brought in and apparently repeatedly brought in because Anne says she saw her 14 times. Uh, and she's been uh, tasked with getting them to move on to the next plane of existence because what they keep doing is moving stuff around in the house of this living family, closing the curtains, opening the doors which then get closed by the living or closing the doors which get opened by the living. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's effectively... <laughs> shit roommates who don't even know they're there. Well,
1: yes, basically. I mean, I I wondered at one point if you, you said about Anne seeing the, the old woman 14 times suggests that they bring her in repeatedly. I always understood it that what happens with the interaction with the woman that the seance that she conducts everything involving her takes place over the course of that seance there's time dilation so that to Ah. grace and the children it happens on different days but i kind of felt like everything that was going on there with them around the table was all happening within the same hour or two
0: right Before we go back to the ghost scenario, we need to uh, talk about Grace and her, I want to say zealotry, uh, because this is not necessarily faith. This is taking uh, faith to the point where uh, you are inflicting it on others in an aggressive fashion. This uh, This is to illustrate that we are not questioning or calling out the faith of any of our listeners. This is some... Old Testament shit at times.
1: It it very much is. What Grace's Grace's relationship with Faith is... I don't know that zealotry is quite the word. She does use it in a way that is very hurtful to other people.
0: It's threatening. It is. Consistently threatening.
1: It absolutely is. And she's... What's what's happening is she's gone through such a traumatic experience and such a series of traumatic experience, and it's been compounded by uh, isolation. And uh, she's been she's been isolated in the house by the fact that her kids are, are suffering from this condition. She's then been isolated in her house again by the fact that her husband has had to leave.
0: And then again, because the war, the island became occupied. And then the island
1: becomes occupied. And now and she's Jersey was isolated by the UK, and and you know there's obviously not been much in the way of defence.
0: And now she's isolated by this spiritual prison.
1: Exactly. And what ends up happening is she becomes the architect of her own continued isolation.
0: Her own ecto containment unit.
1: Yes, basically. And the the isolation she's already experienced. The compulsion to keep playing that isolation out because the second she stops, she has to admit she could have stopped before, and that's that's a big part of this. There are certain truths that Grace cannot accept, and the presence of Mrs. Mills, it, it almost feels like she's there on purpose to help Grace accept this and that that's what she's been sent for if somebody else is in charge of this or she's just decided to do it off her own back. <laughs> but the, uh, the...
0: It's weirdly comforting that they turn up. Though. Yes. It's, it's, it makes the world and the spiritual world that's laid down here far more benevolent and free Than the prison that they've been relegated to, and
1: less lonely, and part of, and it
0: refutes all of the bullshit that Grace that Grace has
1: been throwing at the children, exactly. Yeah, so she's so her. I mean, she's obviously been brought up very religious, and that makes sense. She she lives on Jersey. Um, The France is very Catholic, and and a lot of that suffuses her way of looking at things. It's kind of it's not pure catholicism but there's a lot of catholic concepts that she discusses but these end up being the bars of her own cage and then she uses them to beat the children Mm. because in her mind that's the only way she's going to keep them safe and it's not it, it feels like she's not using it in order to maintain power which is what i would say is is the more um zealot approach but she is very definitely using it extremely defensively she's trying to protect herself from recognition of her own actions mm. and it's it, it it comes out in various conversations that she has with the children it comes out visually as well keeping a cool head is the only way to avoid life becoming unbearable which is precisely what anne suggests the saints should have done Kept their heads. And the other one is when Charles, her husband, returns and she is explaining to the, to him what he ran away from. We all surrendered. The whole island was occupied. What did you expect? That's exactly what Anne suggested the saints should have done. Mm. So when Anne comes up with those ideas, Grace is constantly countering them. But they are exactly what she is doing. Yeah.
0: Similarly, ultimately, there, there is actual merit and value to saying, to, to the admiration of saints for being able to keep their faith amid the most horrendous of torture. It's something that people who are particularly religious may admire. Asking that level of devotion from your children, it's it, its a big ask. Hmm. And ultimately, you, you could uh, start questioning the um, the... the, the laying of this kind of story upon children. But it it does seem to be, as you uh, pointed out, uh, Sharon, the uh, it is designed to get the children to behave sceptically for a bit so that they they can then be set straight and told, oh, no, 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 no. This is how you will wind up eternally damned Mm. if you are duplicitous like this.
1: But if you compare the difference between... If you do not
0: hold this... Above all else. yeah,
1: These rigid beliefs, which, by the way, twist and distort depending on what I need you to to hear in any given moment, Mm. because she does adjust what she's saying according to what she needs the children to do in any given moment. And there is a huge difference between Grace's uh, religious lesson repetition and... She says, don't believe everything you read in books and then believe everything you read in the Bible, which is a direct contradiction. She doesn't say these things out loud and refers to the fact that these are things that her mother has told her. And contrast that, which is holding things very, very tightly and refusing to let... Uh, the children explore any kind of truth on their own to when mrs mills is talking to the children later on she is very gentle with them and she very gently encourages Anne to question what she's been told and explore the edges of it herself simultaneously she's trying to do the same thing for grace but grace has this there's a there's a breathe out relax breathe in tighten up with the way Nicole Kidman plays this. And it's absolute genius. It's it's It means that your sympathy for her is constantly being pulled back and forwards. It means that your understanding of what's going on in the situation is constantly being pulled back and forwards. Because during the day, when she allows the curtains to be open because she's on her own and the kids aren't around, she gets this very sort of upright, I know exactly what's going on and I can... Um, You know, she retreats back into what she already understands. And then there's these moments peppered throughout where she starts to relax, she starts to open up, she starts to explore the possibility that maybe everything she has been taught is not entirely correct. Maybe there is something else going on. But the second she gets scared, she tightens back up again and retreats back into whatever it was she believed yesterday.
0: And if um, both the kids were the way that... um Nicholas uh, behaves, both of them were meek and uh, agreed and obeyed to do everything they were told. Then it would fall to uh, Mrs. Mills to be the one who stands in front of them and defends them and questions everything. But because Anne is so challenging and a fairly massive skeptic, you have this combative conflict throughout the whole thing between mother and daughter.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, This is entirely my theory, by the way, but I have a sneaky feeling that Anne is herself a medium, that she has the ability to communicate across these layers. And as a result, it is not in her nature to accept the bullshit half-truths that her mother is Mm. laying upon her.
0: I noted here that... uh, um Grace has all the answers to everything until she doesn't like all of the questions that get asked. She's like, there's quite a lot of sort of asking very difficult metaphysical questions about life and death and the afterlife at the dinner table. And she's like, oh, that's a question. Mm. And then she searches around for like uh, a few seconds while cutting her fish and uh, then comes up with an answer Mm. and then another question. And then that keeps generating another question. And eventually it's just like, shut up,
1: shut up. She can't cope with uncertainty. Yeah. She can't cope with something she doesn't have a set of, of regulations and explanations for. Yeah. Which is ultimately what the, the purpose of religion is. If you look at its, its benevolent elements, it is to give people a sense of boundaries and, and uh, a feeling of certainty in a world that contains none.
0: Yeah, it's to comfort. It's yeah. supposed to comfort.
1: Absolutely, and she's she's calling out throughout the the film. She'll occasionally make reference to um, the local priest, who she has clearly had contact with at some point. But she says she hasn't seen them since the um, since they ended up having to stay in the house and um, there's always talk of, of getting the priest to come and see them or her going to see the priest, and that never quite comes about. But you mentioned about the fact that she always wears some form of purple.
0: Mm. I was going, colour theory on this? What have we got? Because
1: mm. there's not a lot of colour knocking around this. You're wearing a
0: purple sweater today. I am today. wearing a
1: purple sweater. You're wearing a purple jacket. <laughs> oh, my God. There's an irony. Um, but there's, there's very little colour throughout this. A lot of what is surrounding us is in black and white. The servants all wear black, apart from Lydia occasionally wears a white dress, but sometimes it's a black dress.
0: There's golden amber lamplight a lot.
1: but not much in the background. There's some green and red in the children's playroom and Charles's uh, army uniform is green when he comes back, but it's that kind of muted green and everything, the colours are all... Um, muted and faded anyway Drab. because you've got this fog sitting on mm. everything. What
0: is this, the 2000s?
1: Exactly. So purple, really, and the various forms of purple that Grace wears and, and has on her bed, her bed sheets are made out of purple tapestries, is is really the only prominent colour. And it occurred to me that could very well be ecclesiastical Catholic purple, mm. that it represents what she's trying to cloak herself in, which is the certainty of faith to help protect her from the uncertainty of gestures to
0: world. Yeah. It offers structure in what appears to be unstructured chaos.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, I mentioned before going through the belongings of the the, uh, previous occupants of the house there was uh, there's various photos which allow us to again fill in those blanks when we don't know the truth. uh, It keeps showing us creepy old photos. You know when you see photos of beyond a certain age you just get that certainty in you that every single person in them including the babies is now dead of natural causes at the very least and it's haunting just looking at the photos because a little piece of them is still there
1: which as Mrs Mills explains is the point of why people did it and when she, because Grace asks her about the purpose of it and she tries to explain it and Grace immediately kind of Shrinks away from the very concept
0: that she says it's macabre. Wait, oh. you've jumped straight over. I was just talking about the regular photos. There are oh. regular photos, and then she finds the and death book. Then
1: she book. finds the death book, yes. The death book is, <laughs> is
0: just photographs that Victorians took of their loved ones just sitting on a bench or lying in a bed or in a pram, deceased. And it's this. Uh, in her, I, I wrote the word macabre. She comes up with the word macabre, and it, it's it's a it's a way of confronting death. Mm-hmm. But there's this kind of strange black ceremony going on with the whole book, and and, and there is a, it, it it highlights a certain uncanny, creepy, shadowy, repressing, dark energy of the Victorian era.
1: It does i think from the way mrs mills tries to explain it because obviously she comes from the era when this was done so to her this is this is normal and the way she tries to explain it to grace she couches it in terms of it might seem a bit strange people do strange things when they're grieving but here no no no, no. she
0: says people do strange things when they're grieving yeah. and then she turns sideways. Elbows Nicole Kidman three times in the gut, (laughs) leans back, winks, gives her the finger guns. And Nicole Kidman's, I don't know what you mean.
1: (laughs) But what she's trying to explain to Grace is that ultimately, at the time, this was what they had. This was a way of dealing with a circumstance that they couldn't avoid, which was that after somebody had died, they would sit in your house... Until it was time to bury them. They didn't have funeral directors on every corner to take people to, especially if you were poor.
0: So this is taking a selfie with them?
1: Um kind of, yeah. It's it's a way of saying it's a way of of acknowledging the fact that they're there and reflecting on the fact that that you have to sit with them until it's time for them to go. It gives you a period in which you can say goodbye.
0: Uh, it's a piece of a funeral, effectively. Yeah. The, the funeral is, is designed to help you to 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 say goodbye. And this is effectively an in-memoriam book, mm-hmm. a little photographic mausoleum. Yeah,
1: yeah. And ultimately, the, the outcome of the conclusion that Grace is forced to reach, because she initially will not accept it on her own terms is that by hiding things and pretending they're not there, that is how they become distorted and harmful. Mm. That repression is what causes her all the pain that she's feeling. If she could just face those things that have happened and let go of the idea that by closing the curtains and pretending they didn't happen, she can make them go away... Mm she's never going to be able to move on until she can do that. And actually, by the process of uh, digging through the property of the previous occupants of the house, because Grace really surrounds herself with shining artefacts of the past. Everything is about her previous life. Everything is about how things were before the inciting incident occurred. She's trying to preserve it in amber, because that way she can deny that she did what she did. Yeah by going and looking through the, uh, the, the old photographs of the previous occupants, she's kind of on the right path. She's going in the wrong direction on the path, but she is kind of on the right path. She's sifting through the past of other people. Ultimately, it's sifting through her own past that she's going to have to confront. But she's getting there. She is very, very gradually getting there. But again, she sees something that scares her. She clams up and backs off. She backpedals. And every time Mrs Mills talks to her when one of these incidents occurs, I love the way, and you're absolutely right, the way uh, Fanula Flanagan plays her is wonderful. She is is combining scary beyond all reason and incredibly nurturing and gentle and this is the way you have to come, Grace. I'm going to do this as gently as I can. Um, And backs off and allows her space to explore these ideas herself. When they're sat by the fire and Grace is very sleepy and sort of starting to entertain the notion that um, they're talking about Lydia and the fact that Lydia doesn't talk. And at this point, obviously, Mrs Mills can't explain why because it's to do with Lydia's death. So she's like, one day she just stopped talking. And Grace's response is... Well, these things don't just happen, it's always the result of some trauma or something. And frankly, I massively admire Mrs Mill's ability not to put her hands on her hips and go, Yes, yes, Grace, it always is the result of some kind of trauma, isn't it, Grace? But she doesn't. (laughs) She says, maybe I'm going to go to bed and let you have a think about that and just leaves.
0: Rather than just leaning back, putting on a monocle and going...
1: (laughs) Exactly. Anne, observe this woman. She has tact that you need to learn.
0: (laughs) Speaking of Anne, uh, there are several um, really creepy and unnerving situations. when, Again, when Grace is searching through the house to find these uh, intruders. And uh, to go back to just the... I didn't want to mention these before the spoilers just in case I I, I had people prepared for them Um, because it's it's suddenly being taken aback by a thing that wasn't wasn't supposed to be there. But it's not a jump scare. There's things like she'll turn around and a door is slowly closing in the mirror and there's a lot of shrouds over everything. And there's a lot of human figures around the place. It's not quite, yep, room full of nightmares, but it's close. Yeah. And there was, there's a, a time when the kids are eating and then you realise Lydia's sat in the background and you didn't spot her. And so there's that kind of lurking feel to it. The idea of um, that there could be people there that just aren't making themselves known, but are there nonetheless. And there was a bit which always makes every audience gasp which is where she walks past something and a shroud is pulled aside and then something sort of pulls into focus and the face of a man is very clearly visible and pale in the background and then more light comes across it and you realise that it's a painting. But it does it so slowly and so quietly rather than giving us a deliberate, obnoxious sting that it's enough to make everyone go, (gasps) as opposed to... Like
1: I said, yeah, it separates out the, the, uh, increase of tension and mm. the release of tension which is absolutely fucking masterful and more directors should learn to do it
0: yes but on, I don't know whether there will be directors studying this and uh, boning up on exactly you know sort of replicating this level of light touch because I don't think this especially at the moment would be a massive earner mm. I feel like If it's going to be a new movie, people want a kind of a very uh, visceral experience. And if they go back to the cinema, they're going to want something that just grabs them. And that subtlety will be something, like, for a while, I feel like subtlety will be sort of left to one side. Maybe not, but um, it just feels like people are going to want, after starvation for more than a year, they're going to want to be overfed. They're going to want to gorge on feeling.
1: Mm. Yeah. well as a as a collective society we're not terribly great at sustaining those feelings yeah we want the release to come very quickly it's 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 all tied in with the whole instant gratification thing to be able to sustain that feeling and separate out rise of tension and release of tension you have to have an audience that ultimately is not so uncomfortable with that drawn out mm. tension that they just won't do it
0: Likewise, there's a movie that is actually very, very similar in style to this very light touch. I'm not even going to name it, because naming it would mean that if you do finally find it and see it, you're going to know exactly what's happening. But it's out there, folks, and when you see it, you'll know what I mean. And it's the same kind of story. It's the same kind of story of sadness, grief, and not being able to accept we're dead. Mm. Uh, But hearing and seeing Victor, who's the uh, one who keeps turning up almost almost as many times as the old lady uh, the to start with it seems like Anne is trying to deliberately antagonize and upset Nicholas who's again he's he's that disbelieving age it's very it's kind of like Jane and Michael in uh, um, Mary Poppins but just much darker and uh, she starts talking about Victor being in their bedroom and Victor wants them to leave so at this point in the film you think that this is a ghost boy who wants them to get out and then when She talks to Victor. Victor talks through her, which is just Anne lowering her voice a few octaves and speaking like a boy. But I think there may be something in what you said regarding um, her medium powers Mm -hmm. and her ability to connect because she does it one more time later when she's looking at herself in the mirror in a deserted room uh, and she's got a uh, First Communion dress on and she says, I look like a bride or also just this ghost Mm. and when she throws the veil over herself she's like you know I'm a ghost but then she says care to dance and then her reflection says yes I would but it's like that's the Victor voice she's asking Victor the boy Mm. the son of this poor mum and dad who have moved into this house with an extremely angry ghost in it and a couple of ghost kids Mm. And uh, this is where the, the, the very famous trailer moment happened. I think this was horribly, horribly abused in the rubbish Scary Movie franchise. And I know I'm going to get people saying, hey, I like Scary Movie 1 and 2. Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm glad you like a movie.
0: It's fine. It's the bit where Charlie Sheen finds Michael Jackson.
2: Where is my
1: daughter?
0: Are you mad? I am your daughter. <laughs> What did you do with Shoe? I didn't touch her, I swear. I
2: don't believe you.
0: Please, for God's sake, she's a girl. Scary Movie
2: 3.
0: Uh, the way I put it was, you're parodying a parody. That's what Scream was. What good are the Scary Movie Movies? Well, they precipitated the Movie Movie series, which happened throughout the 2000s and luckily seemed to die a death around the 2010s. I think it was when three parodies of The Hunger Games came out at basically the same time and all went straight to DVD that people were like, you know what? The Hungry Games, The Starving Games, I think we're done here.
1: I think we're done here. It's entirely possible that they sort of ran out of new material to parody and just started cannibalising themselves.
0: I mean, most of them were basically based on, hey, have you seen this trailer? We know you haven't seen the film, but there's this bit in this trailer. And it's like, you know, a guy dressed as Hellboy shows up and then falls over, farts, and a cow falls on him. And that's that's, that's the movie. And you're like, eh, okay. I mean, it's not it's not humour as I'd like, but okay. I, you know, it's fair enough. It's
1: not filmmaking as we'd wish.
0: It's not filmmaking. Um, oh, yeah, you know, that's my Scorsese moment. These aren't movies... <laughs> Uh, you know what, uh, uh, the, the movie movies, they may say movie in them, but they ain't movies. But yeah, there's the the moment of the puppetry and uh, Grace comes across uh, Anne playing on her own in the floor in this little, you know, creepy little white dress uh, with a veil over her. And then she's got this like little old withered, little old lady's hand mm. and is still talking with Anne's voice. And she's like, what have you done with my daughter? And then this creepy old woman looks up from under the veil, I am your daughter! It's a sort of, like, throw-you-out, like, like what-is-going-on-here moment, and it's bone-chilling, but it also serves a narrative purpose even when you've seen the film, because she then immediately attacks Anne, Mm. which leaves Anne feeling like she cannot trust her own mother, which which obviously... Which her
1: back to the night that this all started. And there's also the thematic element there of, is Anne puppeting the old lady, or Or is is the the old lady lady
0: puppeting puppeting Anne? Anne? Or are they puppeting each other? Yeah. But uh, around about this time, it starts going to, uh, you know, to turn into that sort of chaotic moment where everyone's running around trying to find the answer to the question. And they're just holding it for a bit longer, just to sort of rise, raise the tension. And there's a lot of running back and forwards. But we're going to put it on pause for a bit, because before that, Charles, the husband and father played by Chris Eccleston, comes home. This is when Grace goes to try to leave the grounds of this uh, house Mm. and...
1: Specifically, uh, Mrs Mills has just raised with her the philosophical idea, she's speaking very much in the hypothetical, the idea that the... That sometimes there is an overlap and an interaction between the world of the living and the world of the dead and this is pushing Grace too far. She panics and decides that she's going to go out and find the priest so that he can tell her whether this is likely to be true and if so, sir can you come to my house and exorcise it please?
0: I suppose so. And it's like uh, I've got all the answers until I don't and then at at that point I I need to find my local priest. I almost feel like the local priest is Reverend lovejoy going, whatever is it now, Grace? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. But <laughs> or Dougal
0: Yeah. All right now. Uh yeah, you gotta go with there. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, yeah, Father Ted then becomes a ghost himself at this point. (laughs) I'm now haunting Craggy Island. I never got off this shite hole. The fog begins to really enshroud her, and, like, she, you know, she is wrapped in it on all sides, and uh, her husband emerges out of it. And this made me think of Silent Hill. And the game series was a couple of titles old at that point. I think maybe Silent Hill 2 came out that same year, but at least the first one had definitely already emerged in, like, 1998. And. Silent Hill is a game series with some really high points to it, which is about confronting terrible things you've done, almost all of them involving death, or terrible things that have been done to you. And it's a crying shame that Konami didn't simply sell the rights to Silent Hill to a developer who wanted to do something with that. Instead they turned it into pachinko machines or something, I don't know. Um, But it does mean that certain games are, are are very much hallowed, but it's totally in keeping with this movie that it is itself maybe the best Silent Hill film, which doesn't involve Silent Hill at all, uh, insofar as that fog changes things. That fog keeps her captive and that she is forced to psychologically confront the most uncomfortable, the most upsetting and distressing of scenarios. And when she meets... Much like in Silent Hill, uh, her husband, he is a lost soul and he doesn't know why he's here and he feels like he has to return to the war and he's still fighting it. And it's 1945 and you're starting to wonder how late in 1945 is it? Because the war should be over at this point.
1: Mm. There's the way Charles's appearance is played and bearing in mind that at this point we don't know in the narrative of the film that they are... Uh, that they have already passed on. So the way he's framed is somebody who has maybe experienced some severe combat trauma, that he is experiencing uh, a combination of of PTSD and major depression, that somehow he has managed to wander home from whatever front he was fighting on Mm. and has found his way back, but he can't re-engage... Grace brings like abandons the concept of going to find the priest, brings Charles back into the house. Um, and to begin with, it's all run him a bath, get him a meal, try and, and kind of bring him back to the land of the living, but it's not happening. When we see frames of Charles after this, he is absent. He's lasted. not looking at anything. He's not engaging with anything. He hugs his children, but he's not really there.
0: The way he's acting is uh, entirely in keeping with the mythological construction of Limbo. Yes. Yes. Somebody bewildered.
1: Yeah, and it did make me think, with the reflection of, okay, this is the afterlife, that did make me wonder how present is Charles? Is he coherently a ghost in the way that they are coherently a ghost? Or is he a fragment? Or is he a fragment that my my one speculation might be that Anne has called him back because he's the only person who can maybe break through Grace's self-imposed fog. Yeah. And in fact, the moment that that happens, it is instigated by Anne after she's had the confrontation with her mother where she was... Apparently transformed into the old lady and Grace grabs her and shakes her she runs off she
0: says you're not my daughter and attacks her yeah
1: absolutely but, but Anne's response to this is uh, Mrs Mills comes in just in time to kind of get her away from Grace mm. and the upshot of this is that Anne insists on talking to her father and immediately after that Charles confronts Grace about what has happened here
0: yeah it's a, it's a very sad, again, very lonely bedroom scene where uh, Grace strips down to her uh, negligee and, and, and 1940s stockings and is just extremely vulnerable. She's been clad in like mistress of the house, long robes and this, you know purple dresses and coats and things a lot layers. of the way through. Layers.
1: layers and layers and layers.
0: And this is effectively her stripping down to, to just being able to say, "I'm so lonely. Why did you leave? And then starts exploring her own misgivings... ...over whether it was not just the war.
1: Mm, yeah. And then when the discussion concludes... ...because they don't really reach a, um, a final decision... ...they don't resolve anything really... ...but they get into bed together... ...and they're facing each other... ...and there is a masterful trick of the light here... ...where as the scene fades to black... Charles goes first. His side of the bed fades to black, bef- and we can still see Grace on the pillow alone. And then it's next morning, and she wakes up, and he's gone.
0: This is why I think that this is not even his consciousness if we're going to really. I mean, it's mostly metaphysical anyway, mm. but this feels like a memory when he come, he gets in behind her and starts to kiss her neck at the point where she is the most sad and feeling like he's going to leave her again. And there's this giving over of herself to just, just. Please let this be something that lasts, and it can't, and it doesn't. That is indulging in a sweet memory and a fantasy and something which it's it's her last respite before the big plunge.
1: Well, this is the point, again, it prompts her to briefly leave the house because she tries to find him. And then when she comes back the point of no return has been passed and all the curtains are gone
0: yeah and that's the thing that the uh the the people living in the house right now have kind of upped the stakes by tearing down all the curtains and just removing them from the rails and hiding them seemingly aggressively because the curtains keep being pulled over and over again to keep the uh, light out for the children or maybe and especially if you're talking about time dilation they're just redecorating this house because it's it looks like it did when a woman committed an incredibly tragic and atrocious act.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's that they take them down in the course of the seance because Grace keeps closing them. Right. And I also think that it's thematically relevant because this is the point when Grace has had the, this, not necessarily the this is what you did, but the what did you do mm. thrown at her. Now it's all been torn down. She can't. Keep that light, that truth, out anymore, or, or for much longer, at least.
0: Yeah, that's when it comes flooding in uncontrollably. Yeah. Uh, you notice something amazingly subtle with the sound, which is the first time I'd ever heard it, and and tied the two together uh, when Charles appears. If we go yes. back to him, when he um, turns up out of the fog, he's carrying his baggage. He's
1: carrying his duffel this bag. This
0: giant duffel bag of stuff that he no longer needs. But
1: before we really see who he is, there is the sound of what appears to be clanking chains. And this is what Anne has been telling us about ghosts all this time. Ghosts carry chains. And part of it, I I theorised, was that the fact that we can hear his chain and we can't hear anybody else's is because like Scrooge, in comparison to Marley, the things he's done, he is clearly carrying regret and guilt over who he killed in war which is one of the very tactless things that Anne asks him when he turns up um, including the fact that he left his wife and children and as a result is going to carry some responsibility for what happened to them these are the things that that charles is carrying but we don't see it and when he moves around after that you still get a little bit of that metal clank Mm -hmm. but it's framed in such a way that you think oh that's his bag or it's his belt or it's his shoes it's it's some other part of him that's obviously got some metal on it your brain fills in the logical explanation for why that's happening
0: But I don't think it was a mistake.
1: No, no. It it sounds too much like chains when you first hear him for it to be so.
0: Also, uh, because everything suddenly becomes so scary, the servants have clearly gotten together and go, right, we've got to make them confront the truth. Let's scare the living shite out of them. <laughs> and they act like fucking maniacs. Like there are ways to behave mm. and they behave in the most needlessly scary way possible.
1: I think part of it is uh, Mrs Mills is losing her patience with Grace.
0: But she says, I'm beginning to lose my patience. Well, there you go then. <laughs> but she's Oh, not, dear, not no. Not just... No, you're ghosts now, dear. Not... <laughs> Not That's who you needed to get in. This Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire yeah. will slap you up good.
1: Um, it's not just because it's taking so long, because this is the other thing as well. Lydia... ...is also her responsibility. She Mm. is supporting Lydia through the fact that she's not been able to speak... ...and Lydia is still with her.
0: Oh dear, we're paid by the ghost hour here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's the fact that... And with time
0: compression, we're going to be on ghost hour time and a half.
1: I think what's pushing her is the fact that Grace is starting to repeat history. She's starting Mm. to get aggressive with the children again. She's thinning out.
0: That would be explainable. But they're also terrifying to the children... Yes, yes. But I knew you were going to say
1: it. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. No, no, no. explain that. Explain No, that. I'm not... That.
0: Right, we're going to scare the shit out of the wee bairns. No, no,
1: no. I do agree. I do agree. I think I'm the confusing Isle behave. of Skye,
0: Scottish and you are, yes, Irish here. You are. So.
1: But anyway, that's beside the point. Yes, the, no, they the behave, way...
0: No, like, Because the plot calls for this to be a big... like yeah. It would normally be a fireworks show in a, in, a, in a big screamy ghost thing, so they're like, right, we've got to make this scarier. Mm. But ultimately... There's no real reason for them to not go, ''Oh, children, come here. We've got some things to tell ye.'' Mm. Just, like, you know, like do this in the light. Do this in a way that actually makes them not terrifying, but they're stalking through the lawn but, in the dark, wearing dark clothes. They covered up their own gravestones. But
1: the framework that Grace has set these children up to dwell in, mm. they can't do it in the light they can't do it in such a way that it doesn't take some kind of forceful application of the truth hmm. to break through these bars that Grace has put around them.
0: Side note, they cover up the gravestones with leaves. Yes. Grace, do you wander around your own home, like your own garden at any point? To like, do you, Did you ever wonder who, what were the names on those gravestones?
1: Well, we don't know. We know she's never seen it. This is what makes me think they haven't lived in this house for very long. That
0: would make more sense.
1: Yeah. She says when um, she first raises the prospect of the the gravestones, she says, when my husband bought this house, they mentioned that there was a cemetery somewhere on the grounds. She's clearly never found it.
0: Yeah. Honestly that makes like that makes sense that she wouldn't be like okay kids you play nice uh, i'm going to go out and wander around in the garden and hope that nothing absolutely calamitous happens with the curtains yeah, she
1: wouldn't leave the children yep. to go wandering around the garden even while they were alive and she wouldn't go out and do it in the dark and if she did that would be no use she'd trip over the
0: and she's not brainstorm. the kind of fun mum who'd go right who wants to go and look at gravestones in the dark?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I. Okay, you've got kids that can only go out at night. You've got a cemetery on the grounds. That is every Halloween you ever okay. need. under set those up
0: for life. under those circumstances, yes, I will exceed that it is less likely Grace would have seen and known the names on the tombstones. Yes. <clears throat> Okay. Uh, even under those circumstances, though, they should have just turned up and gone. This is Mister T- Mister Snrub, mm. <laughs> and we come from some place far away, dear. Like, don't use the name that's on the gravestone up there. Just lie. Yeah. That that bit you can lie about. Yes, indeed. They're, I mean, they're very careful. Almost, pretty much every. Th- no, no, not even almost everything they say is technically true we used to work here we feel like it's home yes. we just felt like like everything they say is true there were true. a lot
1: of deaths when the tuberculosis hit
0: yes but at the same time they do do that like one like the kids trying to escape down the drain pipe and they're like oh we've got to come and grab you children it's like you could just go, oh, okay, kids, are you scared of your mother? Because uh, we've got some things to tell you.
1: Yeah, but again, everything that um, that Mrs Mills has said to them before this has been quite gentle and quite sort of encouraging them to accept the truth. Um, I, I, again, yes, there are things that are done. A little bit over the top here because we need to move the plot along. Come on, come on, come on, Grace.
0: It's not just that they need—they need to scare your audience. Well, yes. Just to to ramp up the tension, and at the same, like, it's not cheap, mm. but they are—they do go. It would be—it would make more sense if it's like if the kids aren't scared of them because they're actually seeing the the um, these people approaching with a kindly disposition, mm. and the kids are like, "We're actually more scared of you, Mum, than we are of them." Yeah, but. And it, and it's only Grace who sees them as a threat because they are threatening to uncover yeah. the thing that terrifies her the most. But
1: I think that if the the difficulty with that is that it shifts your lines of sympathy further away from Grace. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, having the the discovery of the gravestones by the kids and the photograph by Grace simultaneously, albeit that they're happening in separate places. Um, it allows that To come to a peak All together Which is very efficient Yeah And it's been precipitated By What is possibly A little bit foolish I think at this point Mrs Mills gets desperate She lets Mr Tuttle Have a go at Explaining to them The concept That once you die Your physical conditions Are really not an issue anymore With some rambling story About his sister's rheumatism Oh she had
0: rheumatism <laughs> And then it just went away. And uh, Nicole Kidman's like, yeah, 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 shut up. <laughs> but uh, he's, again, he's trying to get through in his own way and he's not so good with the words, but he's still better than Lydia. Mm, yeah. And Paul Lydia, like... What's Lydia even doing there? I,
1: this is what I mean. I don't think Lydia is there as part and parcel of the uh, we mm. are your ghostly guides. I just think that she's Mills there because Mrs Mills is, is, is looking helping after her, her. Which
0: is really sweet if you think about it. Like, L- Lydia seems shifty, but really she's just being protected by yeah, this she's kindly old lady. She's, yeah.
1: she's still getting used to this whole thing mm. and is clearly struggling with it herself
0: which suggests that certain levels of time compression can uh, can make everything feel like now. Yeah. Which is that's scary. So while their presence as as benevolent helpers is reassuring and comforting, mm-hmm. the time frame scenario around that. Yeah. makes it feel more threatening. There's a there's a push pull with this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll soothe and then it'll grasp. Yeah.
1: And, and it's, then it'll and
0: soothe, and then it'll grasp.
1: Part of the part of the tension of the uh, we need to get these things sorted out now comes from the seance and the fact that they... We
0: can get to that now. Yeah, we're in the, the last bit. The
1: the fact that we're now getting to the point where the woman has made contact with Anne, the old, old lady has made contact with Anne, and one presumes the next step is to attempt to drive the ghosts out of the house. And this is ultimately the thing that they're all trying to avoid.
0: Well, I mean... <sighs> As far as I can tell, and I haven't really studied the subject all that much, um, because so many of them, when you actually see them, are bogus seances, because it's a great thing to shove in a film where it's like someone is a charlatan, especially around the Victorian times. There was a huge spiritualism movement and a bunch of con men and a couple of con women decided this would be a great way to exploit the grieving. And they put together uh, smoke and mirrors, uh, tricks and effects to make people feel eerie. And, um, I mean, they're effectively just, they'd be really good magicians. Mm -hmm. It's just that they're lying to people. Yeah. Like, effectively, if you go to see a magician, you're told magic's going to happen and you buy into it. Yeah. If you go to see a a, a medium and you actually want to contact a specific person, you... You buy into it on a very personal level.
1: Yeah. If you're gonna laugh, you want to know you're laughing.
0: Bingo. Um, but yeah, no, the whole point of uh, of séances, as is, 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 if, if in terms of exorcisms, is to alert the dead to the fact that they are abiding and they don't need to be. Mm. The reason that they're so frequently and especially in older versions uh, of ghosts depicted chained, is not so much that there were just so many dead prisoners, uh, but just the the symbolic nature of the manacles They're holding them to, to the earthly earth. earthly
1: things, yeah. And in in the Christmas Carol, it's symbolic of the yeah. um, the wealth, the and, um, materialism to that that hold them mm. down.
0: It's 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 a it's a twin of the uh, the the lock boxes that he's locked and then marley this is chained around the lock boxes just to make sure no one could get into them yeah. and then attach those chains to himself so no one can steal them from him but now they weigh him down exactly
1: and the the happy ending in that kind of story traditionally is that the ghost is able to unshackle themselves and move on
0: yeah and but. that's
1: not the happy ending that we're working to, to uh, towards here.
0: Honestly, it would have been very easy to have them move on to another plane. There's, I think one of the spiritual cousins of this film is Crimson Peak. And I'd almost like to see what would have happened if uh, Guillermo del Toro had directed this film instead. I feel mm-hmm. like there would be um, a, a lot more kind of gooey... Ghost effects for certain scenarios. Doug Jones would have turned up at least once, yeah. um, and I'm thinking of some of the ghosts in Crimson Peak. The you know the, the description of of what happened to Grace would put, you know what she did to herself would potentially give her something absolutely horrifying to see in the mirror. Mm. But Crimson Peak does have a relief for some ghosts, but continued entrapment self entrapment for other ghosts Mm, and it has that bittersweetness and this is kind of a halfway house Mm. between they've been sort of set free and they're still trapping themselves but under new circumstances and under different rules the
1: the question mark is what they conclude and what ultimately what decisions grace makes now an alternative ending that i thought of that would also work for this is that mrs mills says to grace once all the truth has come out and the the family have run away okay i am here to take the children they're free now they can move on you have to stay here and wait for the next person. It might be Charles, it might be somebody else who then dies in the house. You have to help them pass over. That's your, um, not not punishment, but that's your... Duty. Yeah. Um, your penance, if you like. Yeah. Um, that's not the way it goes, but it, it did occur to me that that might be one way that, that it could have finished. But ultimately what happens is the, um, the fear that... Mrs Mills and Mr Tuttle and and Lydia evoke in the children ends up being a tool of reconnection between uh, Grace and her kids because she's So maybe
0: they shouldn't have ramped it up quite so friggin high
1: Well no the point is because the kids are terrified they they run back to Grace they were in the process Mm. of running away
0: So maybe they shouldn't have ramped it up so high Oh okay If the whole point was to free the children from the strangling grasp of their mother
1: Yes but that's not the point the point appears to be to bring them back together again. Because uh, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the sensible solution, uh, but that seems to be what, what the point was here. I don't know. I don't, they,
0: I don't think it's
1: a happy ending. It, well, no, neither do I. That's what I'm saying. It's, it is it is a mixed bag in terms it's of how it turns out. A little out. messy. But,
0: the, the but, I mean, messy okay. is good, because it, it it gives you that uneasy feeling as you're walking. I'm not, I'm not, I don't consider this a flaw. No. Neither do I necessarily require... happy endings especially not at the end of ghost stories melancholy is very powerful
1: but ultimately in the words grace says as she sends the children upstairs because again she's trying to protect them she says don't separate so by telling them to stay together and not separate grace is recanting the act at the beginning of the film where she separated them and made them study in separate rooms
0: Mm mm-hmm and uh, we get to see, um, from a remarkably kind of almost kitchen sink level, the, um, the, the distressed family who are living in the reality. Like, we, effectively, the mist is dragged away, and we've got the mother who was Caitlin Stark in uh, yes. Game of Thrones uh, telling the father, okay, this is fucked, we're out of here. <laughs> like, we, we, we tried to exorcise uh, this, uh, this small family, and they are not budging which is unusual for this kind of film, because ultimately, as we said, usually it's it's like you can move on. But ultimately what they end up doing is driving away the living, and then as they drive away, leaving this, this little boy Victor looking up at them in the window, looking down at him, and the overall feel we get is almost menace from this... Reunited family that are supposed to be at peace. Side note: We mentioned that he uh, uh, that Anne did his voice before. There's a very clever moment, which is very subtle, where um, she's trying to scare Nicholas and tells her brother uh, that Victor's going to reach out and touch you on the shoulder, and a little hand comes into play and touches him. And you're like, "Was that her?" Because it's you know the the, the lamplight gives you just uh, you know certain visuals on the on the hand. And they don't make a big deal out of it, but then you definitely see that the cuffs of the nightdress she's wearing are totally different to the cuff that Victor was effectively wearing when he touched Nicholas on the shoulder. So that was Victor's hand. So he has been stuck with these ghost kids tormenting him at night. But like tormenting him in a kind of a hey, we're your crap roommate's way. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, we're not going to let you sleep. Um, And it it honestly, it makes me wonder why they didn't simply reverse the uh, sleeping arrangements so that they wake up at night and sleep during the daytime just so that they could have more of a sense of mobility mm. and less of a sense of constant fear
1: that I would say it wouldn't occur to Grace to do that because she is so bound by this religious tradition mm. this is the way things are done right. and we will try to fit as best we can into the way things are done we have the to make the are are best done. of yeah. it it's it. very logical ok we live on the night shift now children yeah but she she won't. That's not something that she would entertain the notion of. Ultimately, and it would be difficult if you had a family
0: where um, they in the uh, mini documentary they had on the Blu Ray, one of four children mm. uh, was living with this condition, and they were just showing uh, uh, shot footage of her just bouncing on a trampoline, middle of the night, just pitch dark outside, and this is her playtime, and forcing the other three kids to live to those hours. Would be very difficult. They've got to be able to go to, to to regular school. But if you if both your kids suffer from it, ultimately logic
1: suggests
0: live with it. Mm. Then ultimately you've got you, know, you have an obligation to work out a way to give them the most freedom in a very confining state of being. Mm.
1: Yeah, but the um, the the restrictions that Grace ultimately ends up kind of she she reshapes their world a little bit but she does kind of put those restrictions back on at the end mm. the the act of um the act that she was pushed by isolation by trauma by fear by loss to commit her own her only way of reframing that to be able to live with it inverted commas in the afterlife, is to tell herself that God allowed her to have another chance. And that's how she wipes it out and pretends it didn't happen. And once she uncovers that and admits, yes, this is the thing I did, then it becomes, right, we're staying here and this is our house and we're going to push away everybody who tries to come in here. And
0: they're chanting it like a cult, this is our house. Everyone else must leave. Mm. And that just, that hammers home. And you just sort of like, uh, um, he pulls out from the window and you can see them in the window, in the daylight now. And then they slowly disappear. Mm. And it's, it's like, you know, we can go out in the daytime, but we're also going to be just possessing this place Mm. no one may come in and then there's a for sale sign on the front suggesting there's going to be a fucking sequel
1: and grace is still wearing burgundy yeah which suggests that she's just shifted that very very rigid religious belief to a very very rigid slightly different set of beliefs that she is still going to adhere to as as Fixedly.
0: The only thing that seems to have changed is that she's accepted that she's done this thing and that they are now allowed out during the daytime because their skin is not going to be sensitive mm. to the light. Which
1: does mean that the children are going to get more of a life than they had yeah. before. And also that they've now got Mrs Mills and Mr Tuttle and Lydia there. They're not going to be completely and utterly alone. And there is always the possibility that Charles may return.
0: Maybe so. But I think feel like with Anne's both her feistiness and tenacity to a principle and also her ability to fuse with the living uh, make for a scenario that I don't think can last. Mm. Even with time compression, she's going to start pulling away. Again, this is an uneasy ending that indicates this ain't over. And also, they drive away this living family. They were this close to being able to cohabit with them Side, nut, side door sequel to Beetlejuice <laughs> You could have had a Beetlejuice well, there Well,
1: as they leave There is a sign on the gate saying For sale, we don't know that the next people Who buy this house aren't going to be yeah. A bit easier to get on with
0: Yeah you could, If the powers are the same Then, you know, Victor himself Could could end up singing Not
1: after night
2: I'm crying daddy, Won't you please come home Daddy, won't you
0: please come home I'm so awesome. Oh, like, cool, and he can, like, levitate. But unfortunately, Tim Burton was not asked to direct this film. He was doing Planet of the Apes at the time, ruining my 21st birthday. Mm-hmm. Also, yes, Sharon mind few. <laughs> So yeah, um, this is a sad, strange spin on Spanish ghost stories. Most of which do tend to end in a, a state of being able to move on, but it also keeps you guessing. It, it, it means that no, nothing is entirely predictable, and uh, it's it really does hold up as a drama and as a as a story about obsession, which doesn't have that. Like it soothes you, and then it clenches you. Like I said, at the end, it it doesn't have that sense of um, just oh, everything's going to be fine. But um, but they do reach at least a new an evolution of the relationship they were at, with the, with the room for improvement in the, in the future. But um, yeah, this is a this is a very solid gothic thriller. And if you're a fan of very solid gothic thrillers, you might want to check out mine, inspired not a little by the others and many of the other Spanish ghost stories. Let Them Go is available on Bandcamp right now. It is seven US dollars and it is spine-tingling. Link in the show notes. The sound of impacts continued. She made her way to Cleo's bedroom, which was the largest remaining and the most defensible. Unlocked it, stepped inside, and locked it again behind her. Seeing the window still shut, but the night turning from black to charcoal outside. She dragged the heavy dresser across to block the doorway, then stood in the center of the room, unable to decide how best to wait. Should she die upon her feet or cowering in a corner? Glancing down, her mind too chaotic to focus, a great surrender came over Rebecca, as she at last drew back the covers of the bed, climbed under them, and shrouded herself in cold cotton. It felt strange under there, wearing boots and a dress. Nausea threatened to overwhelm as her eyes screwed tightly shut.
1: Just go outside,
0: she muttered to herself.
1: I'm not going outside,
0: she replied.
1: If you stay inside, you'll die.
0: The urging voice continued.
1: How long can you really last? Bad things
0: happen
2: outside.
0: Now, Rebecca realised she was not alone. Then, a pained little breath from agonised lungs was let out next to her. to listener Colin Dysart who commissioned this episode School of Movies is funded by Patreon and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode so thank you to Aaron LeCluze Abel Savard Alex Aldridge Angus Lee Benjamin Hoffer Ryan Novak Cassandra Newman Chris Finnick Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler Connor Kennedy Dan Mayer Daniel Salguero Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman David Sheeley, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finn Barnicle, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, James Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G., Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lux, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Next week, Godzilla vs. Kong. The week after that, the Disney series returns with Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2, followed the week after by Raya and the Last Dragon.